Namaste. I am Naya Swami Asha, and we're continuing our study of the essence of self-realization. This is my vintage copy from 1990 when it was first published, but the contents are the same. We are now up to chapter 5, which is called One God, One Religion. Swamiji put this book in a very nice and natural progression. Last week, we, last time we, we made a recording, we talked about the soul and God, and now we're talking about how one um, enhances that relationship with God. And what Master is wanting us to understand here is the difference between uh, what people think of as religion and what the actual experience of God is. And this is something that Swamiji talked about many, many times because it was a very important uh, reality of Master's message. Um, through this chapter, Master talks about the reason why he came um, as an avatar in this particular time and place. And as we go through this chapter, we'll talk about that more. But one of the things that Master did was in a very... Um, when he was asked if he was creating a new religion, he said it, it's a new expression. And I'll talk a little bit more about that in a moment. But... Um, he was commissioned in a very interesting way, Master was. He was commissioned by Babaji to show the essential unity between both Christian, between Christianity as Jesus taught it and uh, the teachings of the Bhagavad Gita as Krishna intended them. Now, both traditions have been overlaid by <clears throat> many generations, of course, uh, of Krishna's and the Gita's many more, generations and generations and generations, centuries of human interpretation. And both um, scriptures and the essential revelation that the avatar brought have uh, developed shades of meaning that were not necessarily intended um, in, the first, um, in the first moment of understanding. Earlier in this series, we've talked about the difference between revelation and religion and so we're going on with that. Swami Kriyananda wrote a book that he called The Hindu Way of Awakening. And he, he took the subject of Hinduism, but the template that he's describing is a template that can be used to distinguish between spirituality and religion. In the movie Finding Happiness, um, Swami Kriyananda is asked whether Ananda communities are spiritual communities. And Swami says very just straight on, without any embellishment, spiritual yet, uh, religious, no, spiritual, yes. He said re religion is uh, rituals and dogmas and beliefs, and spirituality is really who you are and how you live. <clears throat> As Master put it, your religion is not uh, the, what you wear outwardly, the garb you wear outwardly, but the garment of light that you put around your heart. And that's just really such a beautiful way um, to say it. And in his book, The Way of Awakening, um, Swamiji makes a very strong distinction. He, he gives Hinduism a certain credit that it really deserves because he says of all the religions in the world, Hinduism has kept alive the idea of moksha more than any other tradition. And moksha means complete freedom for the soul, complete self-realization, the merging of the individual Atman into the infinite spirit. And even though other religions talk about heaven, um, Buddhism even talks uh, about nirvana, the idea of moksha, this complete freedom, is something that Hinduism alone has kept um, most clearly alive. Um, and then Swamiji talks about the method of awakening your own consciousness and expanding your consciousness. And as Master talks here, one God, one religion, it's the same method for all human beings because what we are in terms of the culture we were born into and um, the, the religion that that culture follows, even the churches that we attend and how we might define ourselves, there can be an enormous variation among human beings all over the world. But the flow of energy, the actual way a human being is made, um, physically and spiritually, is the same everywhere. 
Um, a heart surgeon operating on a human heart can be operating on an African or an Indian or a Japanese or an American. And once it's opened up, it's the same human heart. The same rules apply. And once we go internally into the flow of energy within us and the chakras and the way the vrittis are and the karma and the way we raise the kundalini, it doesn't make any difference what the details of your physical reality are. That is the one religion that unites us all. Um, Master called it, uh, put it this way, he said, self-realization has come, is the unifying reality behind all religions. The, the, and I love the way he put it, the unifying reality, not the unifying belief or the, un, the shared understanding, but it's the unifying reality because the way of awakening is always going to be the same because there is only one way. We raise the kundalini energy, we come to the spiritual eye, we dissolve the vrittis in the chakras, we perceive this infinite unity, and there's no such thing as uh, a separate eternity for Christians, Hindus, or Jews. Once we're into the infinite reality, once we've raised the kundalini, we're all having the same experience. There was an interesting corroboration of the universality of this in an incident that happened in Assisi, Italy. Uh, when, when they were building what they called the Temple of Light there, the, the domed, the beautiful domed temple. You may have seen pictures of it or actually been there to visit. I mean, they wanted to put over the spiritual, over the altar, uh, a glass rendition of the spiritual eye. And the man who was overseeing that project, Arjuna, um, was in somewhere in, I think it was in the city of Rome. He was trying to find someone who could make that image for him. And He's a very intuitive man, and he was praying to Master to help him, and he was in the district where um, glassmakers were, and he felt himself guided to a particular shop. And when he went in to talk to the man about what he wanted, he said it was for a temple, and he, he described the image. He might have even drawn a little picture of it or shown a picture. And um, the man who was going to make it for him was someone who had never met Arjuna, never met anyone from Ananda, knew nothing about self-realization or the principles of Kriya or meditation or anything. But when he saw that image, he said to Arjuna, what is that? He said, whenever I close my eyes, he said, I see that image right here. And he pointed to the point between his eyebrows. He didn't even know what it was, but his own consciousness was connected with that. And this was the first time anybody had ever corroborated the objective reality of it. And that's always true. If you go to the Vatican, um, in the center of St. Peter's Cathedral, there's I, there's a name for it. It's this big platform that's right in the middle of the cathedral, and it's where the priests stand to do the Mass. I don't know anything about the Catholic rituals. Well, it's a, it's a huge and a gorgeous, extremely ornate, and actually quite beautiful um, open-air little mandir, a little temple, gazebo almost. And I went and I stood in there and I looked up at the top and it was a gold ring and a dark blue field and right in the center there was a five-pointed star. And it's just like, there it is. I mean, somebody saw that image. It's not a Catholic image. The Catholics have the dove, which is the star, because the head of the dove, the two wings out and the tail make a five-pointed star, and they often uh, put the dove in various places where we would put the star of the spiritual eye. And to be perfectly fair, it might have been a dove in the center ceiling there, but the effect was the five-pointed star. It was not an accident. Somebody just had an, a vision. Either they had a superconscious experience and knew it for what it was, or they had an intuition that this was the right decor. Because these are universals. There is one God, there is one religion, and so the way of belief, as Swamiji described it, varies enormously. What people believe and the rituals they follow and how they define their dogmas, there's no reconciling it on that point of view. And when you have ecumenical councils without the unifying reality of self-realization, without, uh, without even an understanding of the concept of the way of awakening, people tolerate each other and they're respectful. And they're 
as Swamiji says, they're intellectually interested. Isn't it fascinating how these people believe? Isn't it fascinating how those people believe? Um, Swamiji was in such a conference once, I think it was in Europe, and one of the Catholic priests got up and said, I'm so honored to have this opportunity to talk about my Lord Jesus Christ. And Swamiji just wasn't going to let that stand, especially not in an ecumenical conference. And he said, I'm very happy to hear about Jesus Christ, but why do you call him my Lord? What makes him uniquely yours? And then Swami went on in some gracious way, but the opportunity to talk about my Lord Jesus Christ, um, and you can talk about your Lord Krishna, but of course my Lord Jesus Christ, and you can see just where it goes. There is no hope on that level. There really isn't. But once we understand that the way of awakening is the same, and that devotion to Jesus, for example, and His grace, and following His true precepts, especially as Yogananda explains them, um, then we understand that we're all walking the same path. And even as is discussed in this chapter, when um, Jesus talks about, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the light. Well, let me, I'm going to back up one step behind that. Master writes in this chapter of this book, and this is something that we just simply have to understand. Who has the right to interpret these scriptures? Who has the right, um, who has the clarity is really the word, whose word should be taken? Um, and Master says, you know, those who share the same state of consciousness. And those, those are the ones who can really tell us what these masters meant. And he points out that Jesus didn't argue against any true um, teachers. He argued against the corruption of teaching, the false teachers. He never said that those you know, who teach another way that is the same as mine um, are different, are, are unworthy. That came later. Let me just go, go back for a moment. There are, there is, speaking of the Christian church, and there's a lot in this chapter that's about Christianity, because one master came to the West, and therefore he had to address these issues a great deal. But also Christianity is a paradoxical um, teaching. It, it, it was the teaching that master was sent to restore. And in fact, someone challenged master once and said, because when Master set up his temples in Southern California, he called them churches of all religions. So someone said to him, Master, you call your temples churches of all religions, but in fact, you only teach from the Gita and the Bible. You only really talk about Krishna and Jesus. And Master's answer, his first answer was most interesting. He said, it was the wish of Babaji that I do it this way. In other words, he was commissioned and the way it's explained elsewhere, Krishna essentially represents the spiritual tradition of the East, and Jesus represents the spiritual tradition of the West. Jesus, in fact, was Jewish, and his teaching is a continuation of the Old Testament, so even many contemporary Jews don't accept that, but in fact it was a continuation. So the Bible, Old and New Testaments, are clearly represented by, by Jesus. Swamiji goes on to explain that the essence of all teachings are contained in the Gita and in the Bible, and it's not necessary to detail the way of belief of every single um, tradition in order to demonstrate the unifying reality of self-realization. So Master goes through the Bible, and he reinterprets everything um, in light of the way of awakening. And he shows over and over again that what Jesus taught was the way of awakening that is just the same as the way of awakening in Hinduism and in every other tradition. Swamiji wrote, uh, in a sense, a summation of Master's interpretations of the New Testament. He didn't write it verse by verse, but he, he wrote it, the essence of it. It's called The Revelations of Christ. And in that book, Swamiji begins, and in this uh, book of self-realization, Master states, there is one Bible, and yet there are hundreds of sects of Christianity, many of whom are completely at odds with each other. This is the absolute word of God, 
This is the unquestioned authority about everything to do with religion, and people are battling each other all the time about it, about what Jesus really meant. And you have this theologian and that priest, and now this intellectual, and now that historian, and this novelist, and that politician, and they're all, they all have competing theories about what the Bible really meant. And so the question naturally arises, Swami Master addresses it here, Swamiji addresses it at length in Revelations of Christ, who do we listen to? And that's a very real question. I know when I, I start teaching meditation, basic meditation courses, and I'm introducing people basically first steps to Kriya Yoga. Not everyone who takes the first meditation course goes on to be initiated um, because each step is beneficial in itself. But I often introduce to them the concept of the line of gurus um, that, are be- that are behind this teaching. And it's not even so much the specific gurus, although it's relevant when they come to our temple, but it's the concept of lineage. I mean, the average person doesn't think about that. But it matters what the source is, because people can just make up anything they want. And if they're good at words, they can make it seem very convincing. And sometimes a person will have a little glimpse of truth, but they won't necessarily um, see as far into the potential as it's necessary to see in order to know what the, what the real next step is. So lineage matters. Swamiji tells it in a somewhat amusing and very touching way. When he first came to live at Mount Washington with Master, he was 22 years old. He read Autobiography of a Yogi, as I'm sure you've heard this story before. And as soon as he finished the book, he took the next bus from New York where he was to Los Angeles. The first words he spoke to Master were, I want to be your disciple. That very day he was accepted and he moved into the ashram. And Swamiji hadn't even heard the word guru before he read Autobiography of Yogi. But then there he was, he was a monk and a disciple within a week. And he said his head was spinning, was the only way he could put it. He said sometimes he had to sit down, he was just dizzy with all the new information. And then not everyone in Mount Washington was entirely in tune with Master. There were a lot of people who were there for a while and came and went, and Swamiji was suddenly exposed to all kinds of far-out ideas. And he just didn't know how to discriminate among them. But the one thing he did know was that Master did know. So when somebody would tell him any far-out theory, no matter how far out, he would just say, did Master say that? And if Master said it, Swamiji said, even if he couldn't make any sense out of it, he would, he would accept that it was true. He wouldn't be able to embrace the truth of it, but he would accept the truth of it because it matters who is interpreting. And so when we're faced with so many different possible interpretations of the Bible itself, um, this chapter starts with the well-known story of the man who had six sons who were all blind, and he set them the task, each one was they had the task of washing an elephant, and each one washed a different part of the elephant. And afterwards, they were asked to describe the elephant. And depending on which part they were washing, they had a completely different impression of what the elephant was like. The one who was washing the ears thought the elephant was one big fan. The one who was washing the tail thought that the elephant was a string that came down from the sky. The one who was washing the legs thought he was four pillars solid on the earth. The one washing the side thought he was a wall. And when the father came, the brothers were arguing with each other about their different, absolute um, experiences and facts and perceptions of the elephant. And the father, who who had his sight and could see the whole elephant, said really simply, you're all right and you're all wrong because your perspective is limited. And that's actually a really... Um, wholesome way to deal with the many differences that you see in spiritual teaching. So even though there is one religion, one God and one religion, people are going to pick it up according to their capacity 
to see. I remember once I was on a radio program representing Ananda Village many years ago, and I was there to talk about communities. Um, It wasn't really meant to be a discussion of self-realization or our spiritual practices. It was entirely about community. It was living close to the land, it was milking goats, it was building our own houses, organic gardening. And I was in the studio and I was talking before the program started with the host. And he told me a little bit about his own story. He, he felt eager to tell me his story. It turned out that he'd, he'd had some really hard times in his life. He had been a drug addict, he'd been on the street, and he'd been saved by Jesus Christ. And he'd been saved by believing that Jesus was the only way and that his salvation, as long as he held on to Jesus, he was saved. Well, somehow along the way, he found out that I, I think he looked at some of the material we had and he realized that I didn't quite agree with him. And in the course of our program, when I wanted to talk about goats and organic gardening, he wanted to challenge me on the question of whether Jesus Christ was the way and the only salvation. Now, I really had a dilemma because I could see that this man needed to hold on with both hands and probably his teeth and his feet as well to this belief, this very unquestioned, narrow belief that as long as he held on to Jesus, he was safe because the alternative for him was drug addiction on the streets. So I wasn't going to challenge his faith. I mean, that would have been a terrible thing for me to do, to in any way argue or contradict. So I just refused to discuss it. I, I finally said, you know, the um, faith that you have in God doesn't allow for the faith that I have. The faith that I have also allows for yours, but I'm, not, I'm just simply not going to engage. And I literally went silent. Here we are in a live radio show, and I just went silent. And I just waited for him to pick it up from another angle, which eventually he saw that I wasn't going to engage. Um, So we went back to the goats and the organic garden and all the things that I felt we could safely converse about. Now, he wasn't wrong in his belief. He wasn't right either. He was just like the blind man washing the elephant. The piece of it that he saw was the piece that he saw, and that was simply it. And this is how, but when we're really wanting to discern, we really need to ask who said it. And on what basis did they say it? What is their actual experience? I'm not here um, to, to persuade you, uh, you know, that Master knows what he's talking about. I would be just as impossible as others if I behaved that way. Because the other part that uh, Master puts into these sayings, and I'm just sort of skipping out around all over the book instead of... Um, you know, going systematically, as I sometimes do, but the only way that you can really know is by your own and your actual experience. Master has a a section here and saying um, the number of a religion's adherents are no guarantee of the truth of its teachings. It just tells you how many people have been enamored of it and have embraced it. Um, Ananda had, we, uh, the collective Ananda, had a, a, were given a wonderful opportunity by God on exactly this point um, during the years from 1990 to 2002. Um, many spiritually minded people face persecution of one, time, one kind or another. It's one of the ways, it's one of the gifts, really, that God sends you. And it's a great honor, really, to be persecuted. In fact, I was always amused by a conversation that I witnessed between Swami Kriyananda and the founder of the Findhorn community in Scotland, Peter Caddy. Peter has passed away now, but at the time this happened, he was very much the active leader. And at that time, Findhorn, I mean, it still is, but Ananda and Findhorn were two of the most notably successful and influential communities in the world at that time. There were others, but Ananda and Findhorn were two of them. And Findhorn had uh, experienced a very difficult challenge because they had managed, they were, none of us were ever wealthy, and they had managed to construct a really beautiful temple 
and someone deliberately came and burned the temple down. Ananda had a temple burned down in the early years too, but it was an accident. This was worse. This was arson. Somebody wanted it to come down. And Swamiji was commiserating with Peter because they both knew how hard it how hard it is to manifest these new realities. And then Peter just smiled and laughed. He said, you know, whenever light begins to shine, there is a counterforce on on this planet at this time. There's a counterforce that always wants to snuff the light out. He said, if you're not being persecuted, you're not doing enough good work. It's a sign that God has noticed you, and more than that, that the dark force has noticed you, considers you an enemy and wants to push you down. But the other side of that is that we grow strong from being challenged. And in a very real sense, and this gets rather off our topic today, but even the dark force's effort to snuff out the light is a gift from the light. Because if everything's easy, it's easy to adhere to a, a teaching. If it's comfortable, if everybody agrees with you, if you, nobody ever challenges you, you don't know of what stuff you are made. We don't really know our own strength until we're challenged. This is a very interesting side story, but it, it was an interesting uh, reality that I always remembered. I had a, a friend, more of an acquaintance than a friend, very, very, very sweet woman, very devoted to motherhood. And she always talked um, with a very uh, slightly childish way. She had a lisp and a, a childish manner in the way she spoke, even though she was a grown woman and had a son. Well, she gave birth to her second child, and um, there was some emergency involved with the birth. And the child was not in, entirely in this world, and there was a matter of a number of days where it just wasn't clear whether the baby was going to survive or not. And of course, I've never given birth to children but in this life, but I, I, I know what that would feel like, and I've seen it demonstrated, the power of a mother's love for her newborn child. And so this woman was in the hospital day and night with that new baby, determined that that child was going to make it, which I'm pleased to say she did, and she thrives to this day as a grown-up lovely grown-up. Well, I went to the hospital with another friend to see them. And the woman was talking. And afterwards I said to my friend, did you notice there wasn't a hint of a lisp? Now you think that would be like physical. There wasn't a hint of the lisp because this was not the time to be a child. This was the time to be a warrior to save her baby's life. And it, it manifested like a speech impediment was gone. You know, we, we don't know our own strength until we're challenged. And we learn who we are and become much more than we, we knew and much more we thought we could be. In other words, we advance when we're challenged. You go to the gym, you lift weights. Um, you might do that. I don't do that. I have done it. I, I can't bear to do it, but at, anyway, people do it. And you have to put more and more weights on that thing. I like to just put the weight that I can lift like this. But what is the point? You have to push a little more than you can do. So you have something to pull against. Because that's how you build strength. Well, as above, so below. As it is in the simple, as simple as a bicep, you have to build your soul. You have to build your faith. Belief, as Master writes in here, is, is not enough. And belief is different than faith. If you believe something is true, you'll test it. That's how, how Master explains it here. Um, when I first heard of the teaching of reincarnation, well, I didn't know how to test it because here I am in one body. I saw a cartoon. Um, there's a group of Buddhists. It's, 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 a, it's a group of people. It's called former Buddhist monks. And they say, don't make the same mistake twice. Say no to reincarnation. <laughs> So anyway, when I first heard of reincarnation, I didn't know whether to believe it or not. But it seemed like such a, a potentially fabulous explanation for that which was otherwise inexplicable. So I believed in it enough to make it the template 
that I began to apply on every situation, or every situation that was at all puzzling. And gradually, I don't know how to say it, but I gained faith in the truth of it because I believed it enough to experiment, and then I experienced the truth of it. I experienced it by, well, it became intuitive at that point because, well, later I had memories and intuitions that were more powerful. Even meditation itself, somebody tells you it works, you believe that it works, and then you try meditating, and then your own experience teaches you. Then you have faith in it. You believe in the fact that God will take care of you, that you can trust that the divine is there and is watching over you. And first you believe it, and then it happens often enough, then you gain faith in it. And it's a, an important distinction that we have to move through. But sometimes our belief has to be challenged for us to really find out within ourselves how much faith we have. So Ananda, as I was starting to say, from 1990 to 2002, the form the persecution took was lawsuits. It's the modern way of doing things, even in the midst of 12 years of litigation, which cost us literally millions of dollars. Um, we used to enjoy the fact that at least we weren't just thrown into prison, as we had been in previous centuries, or burned as witches, or nailed to the cross. I mean, it could be a lot worse. We were just having to mortgage all our properties and impoverish ourselves and pay lawyers and spend hours and days and, as it turned out, years in uh, courtroom stuff. Could be worse. But what really began to happen, because it wasn't only... It was a, it was a theological dispute that was disguised as copyrights. Copyrights, trademarks, and who owns intellectual property over the teachings of Master? Who owned them? Who had the right to speak? It would be... Uh, a notable event if it didn't happen to everyone. So we went through it. But it shifted into character assassination and became an attack on Swami Kriyananda, an attack on the integrity of our community, and by an extension, attack on all of us. Because if Swami is a fraud, then we're his dupes. So to criticize him is also to criticize us. Because if we're following someone who isn't what he seems, why don't we have the discernment to know that? But you see, that's where it got to be really... Um, spiritually rich. And this is exactly what this section is talking about, the difference between belief and faith. And when there was an enormous challenge, which was skillfully mounted, you know, if something is really um, stupidly done, it's easy to dismiss. So Divine Mother gets instruments that have some ability to manipulate the material plane. And it's skillfully done it forces you to have to be more skillful in your understanding of what you're doing. And so we all got to ask ourselves a very simple question. Why am I part of Ananda? What do I believe? Why do I have faith in Swami? Why am I committed to the, to the way he's expressed, it, expressed Master's teachings? Why do I believe in Master's teachings? How do I know? These are very good questions. Do I just believe it because this is, it's nice here? I like having a house in the country. In 1976, which was a long time ago, but it was also a, a serious moment in Ananda's history, a forest fire burned through the community, and it was the only Ananda we had at that time, which was Ananda Village out in the woods. 21 of the 22 homes burned down at that time on, on this one area of Ananda, which is where the community is now. And the 22nd home, a gigantic oak fell on it a month later and smashed it in. It was almost like God said, oops, missed one, and then just smashed that one with an oak tree. Fortunately, in all of it, no one was hurt, thanks be to God. But all the property was gone. And 450 out of 900 acres just burned. If you've never seen land the day after a fire, I'd lived there for seven, eight years at that point, and I had walked the same route from where I lived, which was not in the burned area, through the burned area to get where I worked. I'd walked it every day. I got lost. Just, it was so completely changed. And then, it was a very important house cleaning. Everyone got to say, hmm, what is Ananda to me? 
Is it the little house I had in the woods? Is it the beautiful land that is now just charcoal? You know, is it the comfort of having my little life the way I want it? Or is it something um, that is about my soul, about my heart, about my relationship to God? And that was that. And so a lot of people left because Ananda was, was a physical thing. And when the physical thing was gone, from their point of view, Ananda was gone. So in the 90s, when we're facing something quite different, which is very skillful people trying to persuade us that we'd been duped and that Ananda and Kriyananda were not what they seemed and, and Swamiji was not a legitimate um, channel for Master's teachings, we had to ask ourselves, well, what do I really believe? What is my actual experience? And you see, when your uh, belief is challenged and, and you can answer with faith, I know what I have experienced. Now, it's fascinating because in the life of Jesus, there was this, uh, this wonderful moment at the end of his life. Apparently, Swamiji tells us at the end of Master's life, there was a lot of testing of the disciples. And a lot of people left toward the end. I mean, Swamiji was only there for the last three and a half years. But Master himself said that Divine Mother was doing a certain house cleaning, that there were many disciples... Uh, whom Master could hold with his magnetism as long as he was there in the body. But he knew they wouldn't be able to carry forth the work in the way it was needed after he was gone. So he, he, it's a little bit hard to think about how to articulate it, so I'm just going to sort of say it in a way that I think is true. Master knew they'd gone as far as they could go, and then he allowed them to sort of slip back in. They'd, they'd, they'd used up their karma their direct living in the ashram karma. And Master needed a stronger group to carry on after he passed. It wasn't that he let them go as disciples, but he left, let their lives shift. Well, at the end of Jesus' life, you read in the Bible, he said, Jesus started, this, started telling his disciples, you must eat my body and drink my blood. Nowadays, we have the churches explaining it to us that the the, the blood is the wine, and it represents this, and the bread is this. And, but that's not what Jesus didn't explain it. He didn't have the ritual of communion that was all set in front of him, and a hundred thousand adherents, or a million adherents, and a whole line of prelates explaining it. Jesus was a rabbi. He was a 33-year-old man. He was gathering his disciples. He was challenged by the spiritual authority. All of a sudden, he says to his disciples, eat my body and drink my blood. I always love to think of what if Swami Kriyananda just said something like that to us. You must eat my body and drink my blood. Well, the Bible says that the disciple, this is, the, this is exactly the quote from the Bible that I read, the New Jerusalem Bible, the way it's interpreted. The disciples said one to another, this is a hard teaching. <laughs> it's so marvelously human. I absolutely love it. I could see it. You know, Swami said something really loopy to us that we couldn't understand. We would say, what is this guy talking about? Has he lost his marbles? How are we going to follow this? And then it says in the Bible that at that point, many people left Jesus. Many walked no more with him. Now, 1990 to 2002, tremendous assault on the integrity of what we were doing. And people say, this is very hard. This is very hard. And some, I won't say many, but some walk no more with Ananda after that. But the way Master interprets what Jesus was doing, one was he knew the crucifixion, mostly, I mean, he knew the crucifixion was coming. And he knew that those who were going to be able to carry his message had to be very strong. They couldn't be internally, um, internally confused. I mean, the group of disciples had to be very unified in their understanding. So what he was testing was he was testing the disciples' faith in their own experience. You think about that, that's really subtle, you see. It wasn't a question of whether Jesus knew what he was talking about or not. It was whether the disciples had the inner confidence to know what they had experienced and to believe in themselves 
in their own experience. In the rest of that part of the Bible, when many of the disciples walked with him no more, Jesus turns to Peter. And because I lived with Swamiji for so many years, um, Swamiji's way of behaving um, was similar. You know, his, his consciousness was so different than ours, and the way he did things. Uh, when I read about life with Master or life with Jesus, I understand it because of the years I've had with Swami. So when I, I see these experiences, I can picture them really easily. So Jesus just turns to Peter in, in a very matter-of-fact way, just looks at him and very quietly asks, Will you also leave me? Now, there was, of course, that moment was uh, vibrant with, with spiritual energy. But still, Jesus would just be asking that. You know, what, what is, what, who are you, Peter? What do you think? And it would be necessary also in that moment for Jesus, how, how I could say, not to prejudice the situation. Because Peter needed to know for himself. Because Peter had a lot to do and a lot to face. And Jesus needed to know if he was going to be up to it or not. Peter. So to Peter he says, will you also leave me? And Peter answers, he says, Lord, where could I go? I love that answer. And that's why it's in the Bible and that's why the Bible is such a great book, among other sections. Because Peter didn't know what Jesus was talking about. He didn't know how to eat his body and drink his blood. He didn't have the foggiest idea what Jesus was talking about, really. But he knew who Jesus was. Jesus was his master. He believed that Jesus was the Messiah. Jesus had transformed Peter's life. There was no reality outside of his relationship with Jesus as his master. I don't know what you're doing, Lord, was what he was saying in essence, but I belong with you. There is no place for me to go. Now that's faith, you see. And that's not blind faith either, because Peter had experience and he knew. And this is how um, uh, Master is talking here about how belief becomes faith, and faith has to be experience. And the answer to everything really is Kriya Yoga then, or something like it, where we just transcend all the ways of belief and go right into the ways of experience. And when Jesus himself said, I am the way, the whole controversy in the Bible among those who insist, Jesus himself said, I am the only way. No one comes unto the Father except through me. Master solves that dilemma so simply as he explains in here. It's the pronoun I. You see, all of us in our human bodies, we identify with this physical body. And the self-definition and the self-identification that we carry is based on the body that we inhabit. I think of myself as an American. I think of myself as a female. I have a certain age. I had certain parents. I have certain siblings. There are all these realities, but you see, they're all because I've, I, I've started my identification by identifying with this body. And when I say I, that's what I mean. I know that I have an immortal spirit. I believe that I have an immortal spirit. I have faith that I have an immortal spirit, but my pronoun tends to relate to this one. But Jesus' consciousness, his body, and that was the body that you have to eat, is the own vibration. He, he, he was no more identified with the body Jesus than he was with the body of Peter or Paul or anyone else. He was infinite in his spirit. And when he said, I, he meant the infinite consciousness and the path of self-realization he had walked. Now, he also spoke as Jesus. And the way Master explains it is, Son of God is the infinite. Son of Man, was the body Jesus that he inhabited. And he lived on both levels. Um, Hard even to imagine. So when he said, I am the way, he means Christ consciousness, the realization of the unity between the seemingly separate individual and the infinite. That is the way. 
the way of awakening. That's exactly what he was describing. There was no way of belief at that time. That was created by all the people who came after him who didn't have the experience to know what he was saying. So, Master speaks from the same level of experience and tells us what it means. The Masters never disagree. The disciples argue. The Masters always see in each other the same truth. I was saying a few minutes ago, there's nothing I can do to persuade you that Master has the right to know, and I don't want to put it forward as a dogma. But one has one's own experiences, and you can build from the experiences you do have into that which you may not yet have had experience for, but you can see the inevitable truth of it. That was how Swami described when he came to Mount Washington. He absolutely knew who Master was. He knew that Master was a self-realized being, even though Swami had never even known about that. He knew that he was absolutely trustworthy and that Master was his Master. And so therefore, it didn't matter how far out it was. It didn't matter that Swami had no experience to, to support what Master said, but he had experience of Master, and he had faith in that. And that's how we all build our experience. We, we build it step by step from what we know. Let me just see what else in, there is in here that I need to cover. Oh, I know when... Uh, Here's another point about Master that's just really interesting, and this is bringing in another book. It's actually Conversations uh, with Yogananda, and it's entry number 99. And it's talking about this dual reality that a Master has. It's a couple of paragraphs that are really amazing in there. The The subject of that uh, entry is Master telling the monks that if they see others of the disciples seriously transgressing um, the principles of the spiritual life, they should tell Master about it so that Master can help them. And then there's an explanation about he doesn't mean to tattle on people for every little thing. So-and-so got an ice cream cone or had two cups of coffee or something like that. But Master said something serious that really puts the devotee or the ashram in jeopardy. Then you have a responsibility to not speak up is to be irresponsible. And then Master goes on to say, you may think, and Master speaking for himself, you may think that I already know. He said, but there are, and I'm paraphrasing now, but there's, he said, I myself have two levels. As the infinite self, God knows everything. But he doesn't always tell me. (laughs) And he said, and then Master goes on to say, and it's amazing, it's not easy balancing the two. But I do my best to play the role that God has given me. And so sometimes I don't know something until it is brought to my attention. I don't know where to go with any of that, but it's fascinating to contemplate. And so Master writes in here that in his human self, Jesus could say, um, Father, Father, why have you forsaken me? On the cross, which has always been extremely confusing to me. You know, my Lord, my Lord, why have you forsaken me? And in the Bible it says, some of the disciples thought he was um, calling for Elijah, who was his guru, actually, you see. Um, But as in his infinite self, he was completely beyond the experience that his, his small human body was having. But Master says you live on both levels at the same time. And Master says, you do your best to live up to them. But you see, it takes the whole story of Jesus in the Bible and the whole rigidity of this is the only way and this has to be the truth. And it's like a breath of fresh air. It just suddenly allows you to have deep faith in every true religion and at the same time understand that that it's it's all the blind man washing the elephant and the, the whole elephant is something quite different. You know, people who are very um, narrow in their spiritual understanding, Master also says here, they don't, as he put it, they don't necessarily make an, an effort to actually experience the truth of what they believe. And so instead of experiencing the divine as he actually is, as he put it, they make God over in their own image. 
sometimes vengeful, sometimes narrow-minded, condemning of others who aren't in agreement with him. And to sensitive thinking people, it's, well, it can be deeply offensive. Oftentimes, in our beginning meditation classes especially, people will come for meditation, but they'll be very frank that they're not here for God. And sometimes they're fiercely anti-God. God in the English language is a difficult word because it has no specific meaning. And for anyone to have an idea of what God means, they have to have picked up somebody's dogmas, somebody's theologies. Um, they're Sanskrit words that are all could equally be translated as God, but many of them are words of actual experience. Um, the word Ananda, as an example, it means bliss. It doesn't just mean the, the good feeling of having the house all cleaned and finally collapsing in front of the television. It means an inner experience of bliss that no outer condition can touch. And it's a word for God. The word prem means that kind of love. Also, sat, chit, ananda, ever existing, ever conscious, ever new joy. That's the best word for God that I know. People come in, you know, in a Western tradition, not believing in God. And generally speaking, I don't believe in the God they don't believe in either. And it's not really so much that True spirituality has been rejected by them, but false teaching has been rejected. And so one must be careful to understand that there is one God and there is one religion. But that religion is, well, as we talked earlier, Sanatana Dharma. That religion is the way of awakening. That religion is the way of experience. And we need to find a way, if necessary, to overcome these um, wrong understandings and just consider them irrelevant to the question and then go forward. Do we believe in love? Do we believe in the possibility of freedom? Do we believe in the possibility of perfect joy? I mean, these are the questions. And if we believe in those realities, then let us go forward and test the hypothesis to see if they can be true. And if in the meantime you'll just have to put aside a lot of these waves of ways of belief because they're just too impossibly confusing. I felt very fortunate because I was raised in a Jewish family, but I was not raised with any prejudice against Jesus. Some Jews have a lot of trouble with that. One of our friends who was, comes from a Jewish tradition also, and actually was seriously raised in it. I was a cultural Jew rather than a religious one. When she first uh, came to Ananda when she first walked in. She was interested in yoga. And she saw Jesus on the altar. She just ran out. And she sort of tried to explain. She said, you, you, if you're not raised in a, in a fiercely Jewish family, you can't understand how what a betrayal it would be to be even in a room where Jesus was honored. You know, so much has been perpetrated against the Jews in the name of Jesus. But you see, all of that has nothing to do with anything. It's an extremely unfortunate misuse of, well, it's completely false principles that happen to have words in common with true principles. And that's what Master's really trying to get us to understand. The, the Bible is true and the, the teaching of Jesus is true, but that doesn't mean that everybody's interpretation of it is true. I went with my father once, I think I've shared this with you recently, but um, I, I was visiting my family once during uh, the particularly sacred holidays of Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, the High Holy Days, they call it. And I went with my father to the synagogue. He, he rarely went, but everybody goes on Yom Kippur. It's the equivalent of Christmas and Easter for the Christian churches. And uh, it was really a boring service, really, really boring. It just went on and on and the rabbi was, I'm sure he was a good man, but he was not interesting. And what he was teaching was really not interesting. So I had the prayer book in front of me, and I'm turning the pages, and wow, the prayer book was hot stuff. The prayer book was full of fabulous teachings, fabulous self-realization teachings. And I mean, you know, these fantasies, when you're bored, sometimes your fantasies get started. So I'm bored listening to this rabbi, and I kept wondering what would happen 
if I walked up and tapped him on the shoulder and asked to have the mic for just 15 minutes because I felt I could really deliver a humdinger of a Yom Kippur sermon with the very prayer book he was using. But there was no avatar to interpret it for him. But because I'd heard and read and studied Master's teachings on Christ and the, and Krishna, I could look at the Jewish uh, prayer book. And I, I could tell that there was real revelation here. Judaism is a true religion. But it had been lost. And that's why Master incarnated. At the very end of this, um, Master was asked, you know, are you an avatar? Because he explains that whenever the... Uh, the, 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 the true revelation descends so far down the hill of human misunderstanding that it becomes unrecognizable. As the Bhagavad Gita explains, then, uh, a new incarnation is sent to revitalize it. Now, everything about our society has changed in the last hundred years. Um, just Swamiji once said, look around the room. Almost nothing that is manufactured and is available here well, here I am sitting in California, and who knows where you are? And we're just talking to each other real time. You're right where you are, I'm right where I am, and the space between us is gone. And this uh, experience that I'm putting forward today, you're going to be able to go to YouTube in a couple of days. And anybody in the world can have that experience again. We're just The moment is recreated. Time, is, time has disappeared. Um, these are really big changes, what to speak of, uh, you know, travel and everything, absolutely everything. Um, And still, a lot of these uh, archaic religious traditions are holding on. I am the only way. Jesus' revelation began and ended with Jesus. Everyone who's not on my path is damned to hell. Swami used to laugh about that joke of some newcomer coming to heaven and being shown around. And there was this very high wall, and as St. Peter and the newbie were walking by, St. Peter said, shh, we have to be quiet here. He said, and then he said, and whoever's telling the joke says whatever they want to say, the Catholics, the Baptists, the, the Buddhists, whoever it is, let's say the Catholics in this case. The Catholics are on the other side of the wall, and they don't know that there's anyone else up here. But you can, you can put any denomination you want. We get to heaven and you don't. I mean, really. It's just preposterous nowadays. But that doesn't mean that Jesus didn't know what he was talking about. It just means that layers and layers and layers and layers of convenience and corruption and confusion, and some of it's sincere and some of it is nefarious. But it doesn't really make any difference because it has nothing to do with the original revelation. And because a traditional Christianity claims that Revelation, and I'm quoting someone who put it to me this way, began and ended with Jesus Christ, they don't have to explain it. They don't have to make any sense out of it. But the Gita is more enlightened, and so was Jesus himself. And the Gita says this just, it comes and goes and comes and goes. And the avatar descends, descends in the sense of manifests from the infinite, completely free soul. And his consciousness, the consciousness of all avatars is the same, but they have to teach in terms of the needs of the time. And their full vision is limited by the culture in which they've incarnated, the needs of the world in which they are living, and the, the capacity of their disciples to understand it. Because the avatars come also to continue um, the process of liberation with those souls to whom they are um, eternally bound. And so they come and they they work with it and they move it all forward an inch. And everything in our world has changed and a new expression is required. Master was asked, is this a new religion? No, he said, it's a new expression. But my, my, we need a new expression, don't we? We need a new expression that fits the world we live in. And when Master was asked if he was an avatar, his answer was uh, uh, was was perfectly phrased. He said, for work of this importance, meaning this reawakening of self-realization in the world, he said, uh, it would have to be started by such a one. There would have to be that much power in it. And Master came and just planted this force 
of self-realization has come to unite all religions. And he didn't mean, oh goody, I'm starting the next big church. He meant the principle of self-realization and what he came to bring is so beautifully expressed and he says it here. He said, individual communion with God and fellowship with other truth seekers. And that's why he called it self-realization fellowship. That wasn't a, the name of, a, of an organization per se. It was the definition of his whole divine mission. And so we're here together, individually seeking God and simultaneously seeking God with one another. Isn't it a marvelous and perfect moment? And what a gift from the divine. God bless you.